We are up to mitzvah number 95, and this is a really fun and interesting one, and that is the mitzvah to build a temple for God, to build a house, a domicile, a residence for God. The verse says, right after the Jewish people received the Torah at Sinai, build for me a tabernacle, build for me a mikdash, a sanctuary, build for me a home. And of course, this idea dominates the second half of the book of Exodus. We have five parashios that uh, conclude the book of Exodus that talk about the building of the Mishkan. You assemble all the materials and all the gold and all the vessels are built and the the structure is built as well. And that really takes up a big part of the Torah. And then, of course, you have the book of Leviticus, which deals with, amongst other things, deals with what you actually do in this tabernacle. And they get to the book of Numbers, and there are extensive parts of the book of Numbers that deal with the transportation, the assembly, the, the, the carrying of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is a big part of the Torah. And of course, eventually the Jewish people are going to establish a permanent temple in Jerusalem. So this mitzvah really is a broad mitzvah. There are huge segments of Jewish life and Torah life that are devoted, that are dedicated to this edifice, to this building. There are, in fact, hundreds of mitzvahs that relate to the temple and to the tabernacle. All the sacrifices, laws of purity and impurity are primarily oriented around the temple. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, the book that is guiding us through the mitzvahs, he tells us that the purpose of the temple is twofold. Number one, it is a place where we do the sacrifices, both the communal sacrifices like the daily Tumid sacrifices, the Musaf offerings that are done on Shabbos and festivals, all the various sacrifices that are done from the community. And of course, it's also the place where the individual sacrifices are done, the Ola, the Chatas, the Shlamim, the various different sacrifices that are part of normative Jewish life, or at least when we have a temple. In addition, the temple is also the location that's the epicenter of the Jewish world. Three times a year, Jews from all across the world coalesce, gather together in Jerusalem in the temple. That's where the Jewish people got together. This is the epicenter of Jewish life, and that is the second component of the temple. And it's a mitzvah, we're told in the Torah, to build one. One of the 613 mitzvahs is to build a temple, and that is fulfilled in various ways, either with the Mishkan, which is like the temporary temple, or the permanent temple. Now, just the brief history of our fulfillment of this mitzvah, of course, like we mentioned earlier, in the wilderness at Sinai, Moshe, together with Betzalel and Ahaliyav and all the helpful people that contributed monetarily and towards the actual construction of the Mishkan, they built the portable temple. That's the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that moved with the nation. The cloud lifted, they quickly dissembled the Mishkan, and they followed the cloud. And whenever they got to the new place where they're going to encamp, they once again rebuilt it. They reassembled the Mishkan. So over the course of the 40 years, from the Exodus until the passing of Moshe, they assembled, disassembled the Mishkan several dozen times. After 
Moshe passes. Joshua takes over the reins. And we still have a Mishran. And they cross over the Jordan. And the Mishran spends some time in Gilgal. And then in Shiloh and Shiloh. And Nov and Givon. But the Mishran itself, the tabernacle itself, was always destined to be the interim temple. The verse tells us in Deuteronomy, it talks about when the Almighty chooses a place, a special place, where the Almighty destined for that place to be the location of the permanent temple and the permanent location of his presence, that you build a permanent temple, and once that permanent temple is established, there is no more a Mishkan, there's no more a temporary or even a portable temple. Now, it's interesting in Scripture, the location where the permanent temple is going to be located is not identified. It's it's just called Hamakom, the place. Ultimately, we know David bought Jerusalem and bought Temple Mount from the Jebusites. And the prophet tells him, oh, this is a location where the Almighty wants his permanent temple to be. Now, it's interesting that whenever the Torah uses the word Hamakom, the place, and it doesn't identify which place it is, it's actually referring to Temple Mount. So, for example, when Abraham is told in chapter 22 of Genesis to take his son, his only son, his favorite son, to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice, this is, of course, the binding of Isaac episode, he tells him, go to, the, go to Mount Moriah, and then after three days of traveling, Vayar es hamakom meirachot. They saw the place from a distance. In addition, when when Jacob is fleeing from his brother, and he stops to spend the night in the place, and he has that memorable dream where he sees the ladder going up, and the angels going up the ladder, and the angels going down the ladder, and God makes all these amazing promises to him. And we know the story based upon the Midrash, the, the stones were fighting and they were merged and fused into one. Vayifgabamakom, the verse says. And he encountered the place. So it's interesting that on one hand, the Torah tells us that there is this place that's featured a few places or in a few instances in the Torah. And then in Deuteronomy, we're told that there's going to be a place. And then, of course, we find out later on that that is the same place that was identified as just the place earlier in the Torah. But it's not actually spelled out. It doesn't say Jerusalem. It doesn't even say Mount Moriah. It doesn't say Temple Mount. It just calls it the place. It obscures the identity of the location. So it's an interesting question. Why not explicitly say Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, the location of the binding of Isaac? Why is that obscured? And for several hundred years, the nation is awaiting some sort of guidance as to where this place is, where is this location where the permanent temple is going to be built, and only after David purchases Jerusalem and Mount and Temple Mount, only then is it identified by the prophet, you know, almost 400 years after, after Moshe, only then is it identified as the very same place featured in the Torah. So the Rambam, he asks this question. He gives several answers. He says that 
there was a need to obscure this place or the identity of this place. Why? Because if everyone knew where the connection between heaven and earth is most intimate, is most strong, if everyone knew where the foundation stone, the first part of the bedrock that God created, if everyone knew where that was, if everyone knew where the heavenly temple, so to speak, hovered above the earthly temple, if everyone knew where the connection to God is strongest, everyone would be fighting and slugging it out to gain control over that place. So on one hand, there's the concern that the Gentiles will come and fight over it, or maybe they may sabotage it, or maybe when Joshua is dividing up the land, everyone wants, of course, the capital and the temple to be in their ancestral homeland. Just like, you know, Washington, D.C. Everyone wanted the capital of the country to be in their state. Why? Because if your state has the seat of power, it's just a boon for the entire state, entire region. And there was a compromise to move it to the south and between Maryland and Virginia on the Potomac. Of course, it has nothing to do with the fact that George Washington's estate was right there. Nothing to do with that. That was totally incidental, of course. But everyone is fighting. Everyone's jockeying to have the seat of power close to to where they're located. Now, you're going to arrive in the land and you're going to divvy up the land. And if the tribes knew ahead of time where the future temple and the future capital of the country is going to be located everyone would insist on having that in their ancestral lands. And therefore, it's obscure. No one really knows. No one knows. And for hundreds of years, the people settled down into their ancestral apportioned tribal lands. And after 400 years, the prophet tells David, okay, it's right over here, straddling the lands of Benjamin and Judah. This is the place featured in scripture. Now, David himself, he wants to build the temple. And God says, no, David, you're my favorite. You're my cherished. You're my beloved. You are the founder of the Davidic monarchy. You are the Messiah of God. But you have a lot of blood on your hands. And because you're a great warrior, even though you did it only for God and only per the guidance of the Sanhedrin, nevertheless, Your hands are tainted with blood, and therefore you are not the right person to build this house of peace. But your son Solomon will build it. And of course, the beginning of the book of Kings is dedicated to Solomon's construction of the temple. 480 years after the Exodus, the construction begins. Now, the Mishkan, incidentally, It was never destroyed. Temple 1 is going to be destroyed. Temple 2 is also going to be destroyed. But the Mishkan was archived. It was placed in hiding. It was never destroyed. Now this relates to another motif in Jewish philosophy, and that is that whatever Moshe himself built or oversaw the construction of, that was always permanent. There's nothing that Moshe gave or acquired on behalf of the nation that was 
lost or was even liable, was, was subject to being lost or destroyed. The Mishkan endured forever. It was archived once there was an upgrade to a permanent temple. Now, after Jerusalem was selected as the home of the permanent temple, it was given exclusivity rights from then on. You want to build a mock-up? It's much more convenient to put it in Indianapolis or even Tel Aviv. It's near the airport. It's great. People could come, fly in, do their sacrifices, go back to where they came from. You can't do it. There's only one place in the world, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's the only place where a temple can be located once the temple is built in Jerusalem. All the other places in the world, they are forbidden to to build a house for God there. Moreover, you can no longer bring any sacrifices elsewhere. Previously, there was this idea, at least, of a bama, a private altar. We know, you know, Abraham, we read Genesis. Abraham built four altars in, in Genesis in various different locations. Why? Because there's no, there's no Mishnah. There's no one place. And therefore, anywhere that you want, you can actually establish, you can erect an altar and offer sacrifices upon it. Once the permanent temple is built in Jerusalem, nowhere else can we build a temple. Nowhere else can we offer any sacrifices. Now, the first temple lasts for 410 years. Ultimately, it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the Babylonians on Tishabov, 70 years later, the second temple is built. It lasts for 420 years. Over the course of those 420 years, the Greeks came and defiled it. We have the story of Hanukkah. It was refurbished by Herod and made into the most beautiful building in the world. Ultimately, it too was destroyed by the Romans this time. And ever since then, the hopes and the dreams of our nation have been to once again fulfill mitzvah number 95, to fulfill the mitzvah of again building the temple. So we mentioned this many times in our prayers. So we say the prayers three times a day. And we talk about the building of Jerusalem and the dwelling of God once again in Jerusalem. And we pray, build it speedily in our days, soon in our days, as a structure that is eternal. We are anticipating the third temple, which unlike temple one and temple two, will be eternal. Moreover, we pray to reinstitute the sacrifices. And then after the Amidah prayer, there's a short prayer that we say at the conclusion of the Amidah, we say, the will before you, that the temple shall be rebuilt speedily in our days. This is the subject and the hope and the yearnings of our people. In the Musaf prayers, so for example, today is Rosh Chodesh Iyar, and in the Musaf prayers, you talk about the building of the temple and the restoration of the sacrifices. So we're hoping for almost 2,000 years now for temple number three to be built. Now, there is a dispute amongst the medieval commentators as to what temple number three is going to look like. 
According to the Rambam, he says, it will be built the same way Temple 1 and Temple 2 were built. How so? With human labor. Artisans, craftsmen, materials, stone and wood, etc. Gold, of course, lots of that. The way you build a building, that's how we do the construction of the third temple. Who is going to do that? So the Rambam tells us that is the job of an individual called King Messiah, Mashiach. One of the job requirements of Messiah is to build the third temple. So if you want to know who is actually the identity of the Messiah, the Rambam has a simple formula. The person who builds the third temple, that's only one of the requirements. But that person, that is Mashiach. So we have this responsibility to build the vessels. Maybe there's a big discussion about this, but maybe the ark, which was present in the first temple, but was put away, was hidden in uh, in catacombs of sorts underneath Temple Mount. And in the second temple, the service on Yom Kippur was done not on the ark, but was done on the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone, which many believe is the same stone, the same rock that's under the shrine called the Dome of the Rock on Temple Mount. That's a discussion for a different day. But we're going to get those vessels and the ones that we can get, we can find, we'll get. Otherwise, we'll construct them and build the building. That is the opinion of the Rambam. Rashi, Tosvos, amongst others, they say, no, the third temple is going to be miraculously constructed. It's going to be constructed in heaven and it will descend in fire from heaven. Which one of these are going to be true? Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Or perhaps, perhaps, it is contingent upon our righteousness. If we are very righteous, then God will descend or will parachute down the temple from heaven in fire. What a sight to behold. Alternatively, perhaps, in the event that we're not as meritorious, then it will have to be the handiwork of us mortal and feeble humans. Regardless, that is the mitzvah, mitzvah number 95, the mitzvah to build the temple to have a home for God in this world. Now, the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we are using to guide us through the 613 mitzvahs, in every mitzvah, he talks about the reason behind it. What's the reason behind it? Or what is potentially a reason for us to understand what's a rationale that we can understand in uh, in making sense of this mitzvah. Of course, the real reason why we do any mitzvah is because God tells us. You follow the instructions of God because you're a tiny ant in a huge factory floor. You don't know anything. Our vision is so limited and we trust the creator of everything. Nevertheless, it's helpful to understand, to have some basic understanding, a way for us, even feeble and small and mortal humans, to make sense of these mitzvahs. So he's a very long piece about trying to understand this mitzvah. We'll go through it briefly. First thing he says is that don't make the mistake of thinking that God needs our mitzvahs. The definition that we have of God, the most basic definition that we have of God 
is that he lacks nothing. He doesn't need our mitzvahs. It doesn't change his status. And the purpose of mitzvahs are for us. And the way he explains it, the Almighty wants to benefit us and therefore he gives us the tools and the instructions through which we can perfect and refine and benefit ourselves. A mitzvah perfects a person and it renders that person worthy of divine reward and that's why we have mitzvahs in general. And he adds, if you neglect the mitzvahs, it's really a terrible thing because you're telling God, I don't want what you have for me. Especially if you understand that the Almighty only gives us the mitzvahs for our own benefit, you're rejecting the benefit that the Almighty wants to bestow upon you. And therefore he says, this building is a tool through which humanity can perfect themselves. He explains, someone, someone makes a blunder. Someone makes a mistake. They do something that they regret. They do something that lowers their standing, lowers their stature. They go to the temple. And the temple uplifts them. And in the temple, they offer a sacrifice. And the purpose of the sacrifice is to accelerate the perfection and the repentance and the rectification and the expiation of man. And they go there and they get to spend time with the Kohanim and they get to see and witness the Levites singing and playing music and they go to a place of impeccable, spotless purity and that elevates everyone who visits the location. You go there and you are changed forever. The Almighty doesn't need a house. He doesn't need visitors. That's not what the temple is all about. This is a tool, a venue in which we can perfect ourselves and through which we can become elevated and more worthy of divine goodness. And therefore he says, I'm going to make a location that's most auspicious for connection with God. That's most elevated. That's the touch point of heaven and earth. And I'm going to give you all the things that you need to do to make your visit more impactful. And the temple, thus, is is resplendently furnished with all these amazing vessels. And it's such a awe-inspiring thing to witness. And that's to get the message home of what really life is all about. And it's it's a way to kind of neutralize the impact of the Yitzhara. And you want to cleanse yourself. It's not enough to just say words, oh, I feel bad. You you make a trip. If you think about what this is like, you know, imagine you live in, you know, near the Kinneret. Today it's a three-hour drive from Jerusalem. But 2,000 years ago, that was, a, that was a week's journey on a caravan. Imagine what it's like. You made a sin. You blundered. You did something wrong. Now you're taking a week to travel to Jerusalem, this tremendous pilgrimage, to offer a sacrifice. And he adds that the purpose of a sacrifice was 
was to really encourage a person to repent. He quotes the Ramban. The Ramban says that when we when we make a mistake, when we do a sin, it happens in our mind, in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our deeds, in our behavior. And every part of the sacrifice and the processes of the protocol of the sacrifice, all that is designed to fix and rectify. You put your hands on the animal, and that's an action to fix the action that was the blunder. And you speak and you confess verbally to fix the words, and the animal's burnt to the fire, and that's corresponding to the fire that we have within us, and the fire of lust, and the fire of temptation, and the fire of bad thoughts. And the hands and the arms of the animal are corresponding to the hands and the arms of the person. And the blood of the animal is sprinkled upon the altar to symbolize that a person really is guilty with their blood when they transgress against God. And a person is supposed to think about the fact that really if you violate the will of, of the Creator, you really don't deserve any more life. Think about it. If you went to Saddam and you said, I'm not listening to you, or to Kim Jong-un, or ill, or any one of the Kims. You don't listen to the autocrat, you're dead. But these are small little peons. These are nothing. God is, is the only power. If someone violates the will of God, they don't deserve any life. But the Almighty, in his magnanimity, he allows us to repent. And to realize what we did. And we take an animal and we foist upon that animal all of our sins. And we watch the animal being sacrificed. We're supposed to think about really, really that's, that's what I'm deserving of. And that's a way to cleanse a person from their transgression. So again, the, the, the temple's really a tremendous institution amongst the Jewish people. Because this is how we can elevate and perfect ourselves. A nation that actually has this location, this, this resonance, domicile of God amongst them, that's a elevated nation. That's a nation worthy of receiving the tremendous reward that the Almighty wants to bestow upon us. Thus, we have a mitzvah to build the temple. And that mitzvah, by the way, is still active today. It's hard for us to, to imagine you know, there's clashes on Temple Mount. I'm sure you've seen that story recently in the news. We have a mitzvah today to actually build the third temple. It's a mitzvah upon us. We have to do it. We'll talk more about the practicality of doing that in a little bit. But let's go through some of the laws, some of the basic laws. When you build the temple, there's different parts of the temple. There's the Kodesh, the holy part, the, the sanctuary, the holy of holies, and the antechambers and the various different other modules of the temple complex. And you have to make locations for all the, the storage houses to accommodate the needs of the temple. Really interesting, the Sefer Chinuch tells us we don't do repairs. There's no repair shop in the temple. If any vessel gets broken, it gets cracked, it falls on the floor, we just replace it. You don't weld it back. In a place of riches, there is no poorness. There's no poverty. 
Similarly, if there's a if there's a sword or, or a knife that falls on the floor, gets a little nick, we don't fix it. We just make a new one. In addition, of course, there are all the vessels that we need to build. The Rambam gives us a list. The altar, which is the outer altar, upon which we offer the sacrifices. There is, of course, the ramp that leads up to the altar. And then there's the laver, the, the tear where you wash your hands and feet. Not you, but the Kohen does. And the exact location where that has to be placed. And then there's the inner altar, sometimes called the golden altar, upon which the the ktores, the incense, is offered. And then there's the menorah. And then there's the table, the shulchan. And those are in the Kodesh. And of course, in the Kodesh Kodashim, there is the Aron, the Ark. The Ramam, in fact, does not bring that. There's a bit of discussion as to why the Ramam omits the instruction to build the Ark. It seems like that's not something we build. That's something that we, we find, we rediscover. And of course, there's also the, the enclosures needed for the temple. So of course, all of you listening now, are asking the question, okay, I'm in. I'm, I'm ready to dig. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to contribute. I'm ready to actually fulfill this mitzvah. If this is one of 613, then I'm ready to go. Interestingly, the Sefer Chinuch tells us that this mitzvah is only active when the majority of the Jews live in the land of Israel. So today... Israel is the most populous country by Jews, but it's not yet a majority. It's not yet a majority. There's still a majority of Jews who live in the diaspora, in the United States, of course, in Canada, South America, various different places in, in Europe still, South Africa, Australia. Really, really every country has a representation, but the majority of Jews are not quite in Israel today. And therefore, there will not be an active mitzvah right now because, at least the way the Sefer Chinuch presents it, the majority of the Jews are not quite there. It's almost there, but not quite yet. Moreover, this is not an individual mitzvah. This is not an individual mitzvah. A person should not say, well, it's a mitzvah. I'm going to go and start digging to do what I can. No, that's not the proper way to do it. It's a mitzvah that is upon the public upon the community. Now the Ram tells us, as I mentioned earlier, HaMelech HaMashiach, the King Messiah, who's going to be the King of the Jews, or the leader of the Jews, he's going to restore the Davidic monarchy. He will build the temple. He will gather the Jews from the far-flung corners of the earth and will restore Torah law upon the land and sacrifices and Shemitah and Yovel the calendar laws, and all the mitzvahs that are featured in the Torah. Uh, of course, if you consider yourself a candidate, then it's time to get to work. But when Mashiach comes, we will have the third temple one way or another. Now, I think you know there are maybe, we would think that there are political considerations about this mitzvah, because in the last couple of thousand years, since we had the first or the second temple, since we had the most recent temple, there's been some neighbors that moved in. There, there are some hostile elements that would look quite unfavorably upon us building a third temple. In fact, if you look at the map of Jerusalem, 
You see all these parts of the land that are not occupied by any Jews. And they're really close to the very parcel of land that we need to build the temple upon. Again, we cannot use a substitute. We can't go to Tel Aviv and say, you know what, here we could do it with less backlash. In my opinion, the Almighty made sure that there are these hostile elements in order to make sure that we don't build it before we are ready. Moreover, this is another opinion that I have, if there were no non-Jews in Jerusalem, then all of Jerusalem would be populated by Jews. And therefore, there would be no land that could be easily evacuated, shall we say, in the event that we build a temple. Because you build a temple, you need all kinds of associated lands to facilitate. Again, we have a mitzvah that all Jews have to come to the temple on Pesach. So how are you going to accommodate, you know, 10 plus million people to fly in from all over the world on Pesach and to come to Jerusalem. You need a lot of land for that. Now, Jerusalem, we're told, is a very malleable land. It expands. There's always room for, for another cot, another, another tent, pitcher tent. Come, there's, there's always more room for another person. We'll just stick in another bunk bed. We'll, we'll find some room. But nevertheless, we need a lot more room. So in my opinion, we're going to take those lands, once they're evacuated, build, build you know, skyscrapers, 1,000 uh, room, 5,000 room hotels to accommodate all the people that want to come for the pilgrimages. Moreover, you know, the, the entire Judean hills, there's a lot of vacant land all that is going to be availed to the temple needs. So that land, I think of it as being held in escrow. It's being held in escrow by uh, hostile forces or hostile elements because it's not quite the time for it. But if you think about it this way, you know, if I told you 200 years ago that in 200 years, almost the majority of the Jews are going to be living in the biblical land of Israel. You would have, you would have my head inspected. You would say that that's not possible. You know, there's, there's, there's barely anything there. Is it just a couple of small communities, barren swamplands? There's nothing there. The Jews are in Poland. The Jews are in Russia. The Jews are in white, white Russia. The Jews even haven't moved to the United States. Various places in Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, Iraq, Persia, etc. The Jews are everywhere in the world but the land of Israel, but the Holy Land. But here we are, 200 years later, and what, there's six or seven million Jews living in, in a flourishing state, land of Israel? It's an unbelievable thing. That's a much bigger hurdle to overcome than to just send a few tractors up to Temple Mount and begin the construction. And you know what? The other nations, they uh, wouldn't look favorably upon this. It's hard for us to imagine kind of the geopolitical considerations of of such a construction project. But it's important for us to remember, like, no one can stop this. <laughs> when it's time, there's no force in the world that can stop it. 
I want to end with an observation from the Talmud. The Talmud notes that Jerusalem and Temple Mount specifically is associated with the three forefathers. Abraham, the pinnacle of his of his storyline is the binding of Isaac. And they travel to Mount Moriah and they see the place. And in fact, after the whole story, when Isaac is supplanted by the ram that was caught in the thicket, Abraham renames the mountain. He calls it Har Yerah, the mountain upon which God will appear. Isaac is also associated independently. Of course, he was part of the binding of Isaac story, but independently he's associated with this location. In that instance, the mountain is called a field. When Rebecca is being brought back from her hometown, they encounter Isaac. Isaac was lasuach. He was, he was praying in the field. That field, the Talmud tells us, is none other than Temple Mount. And of course, Jacob, when he's fleeing from his brother, going back to his, to his mother's hometown, to Laban, he stops off in the place and he has his dream with the ascending and descending angels. And he wakes up in the morning and he makes a bunch of declarations and he renames the mountain the house of God, Beit El, the house of God. So the Talmud points out that we have three different descriptions of the same mountain. Abram calls it a mountain, mountain Har Isaac calls it a field. And Jacob calls it a house. Says the Talmud, because there's three different temples. The first temple corresponds to Abraham. And just like Abraham had a son that's kind of a little bit of a wayward son, Ishmael, wasn't perfect. The temple that corresponds to him, while imposing and very spiritually lofty, like a mountain, it won't last. After 410 years, it was destroyed. Isaac corresponds to the second temple. But like a field, it could be plowed. And in fact, quite literally, when Hadrian destroyed Jerusalem, he had the mountain raised, raised with a Z, plowed. He had the mountain plowed. It too did not last. However, regarding the third commonwealth, unlike Abraham who had Ishmael wasn't so perfect. Isaac, who had Esav, wasn't so perfect. The third temple corresponds to Jacob. And Jacob, all of his progeny is righteous. And therefore, just like a a house that has a degree of permanence to it, or is associated with permanence, a permanent edifice, the third temple that corresponds to Jacob will be permanent as well. And the Talmud quotes the verse in Isaiah chapter 2. And many nations will go, and they will say, Let us ascend, let us go to the mountain of Hashem, to the house of the God of Jacob. The Messianic temple will be corresponding to Jacob, the house of Jacob, not like Abraham's house or mountain that was destroyed, not like Isaac's house or field that was plowed that was destroyed, but instead, like the house of Jacob, 
that was permanent. So we hope, of course, that the current settlement and commonwealth of Israel and of the land will in fact be a fulfillment of these prophecies. And may we witness the fulfillment of this mitzvah, mitzvah number 95, the reestablishment, the rebuilding of the temple. May it happen speedily in our days. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.